you ever get that feeling in the pit of your stomach? That feeling you get when you have to do something you know you're not going to like? Maybe you get agitated. Maybe you actually feel physically ill. Palms sweaty, heart beating faster. You'd rather just forget the whole thing. I'll admit, I'm a procrastinator. I especially put off things that are unpleasant. When I have to talk to someone about an uncomfortable topic, I would gladly put it off as long as possible. I can't be the only one who would rather avoid having those awkward and sometimes awful conversations. There is a reason these are labeled difficult. They are not easy. A happy conversation wouldn't give us much to talk about, so we are digging into the uncomfortable. I'm Kathy Bowers, and this is The Objective Lens. In this episode, we will dissect difficult conversations, why you need to have them, and what is the best way to go about having them. My hope is that by the end of our time together, you can gather some ideas, strategies, and tools to help you initiate a successful, difficult conversation. I'm a talker. Believe me, I can talk. A lot. But there is a difference between talking and holding a conversation. I am continually trying to hone my own skills in the art of conversation. Along with that comes the practice of initiating and holding a difficult conversation. These are the sometimes awkward talks you need to have with a colleague, coworker, friend, or even a family member. For the sake of this podcast, we're going to lean on the situations in the workplace. Those conversations at work that can be labeled as difficult because there is either some negative news or feedback involved. Something you just know the other person is not going to want to hear. Like as lab managers, none of us wake up in the morning going, oh, I can't wait to catch a privacy breach or I can't wait to have this conversation with someone about their absenteeism or what they posted on Facebook was not appropriate. And, but it's one of the, it's part of our job and um, it's, it's, it's an expectation that when um, unacceptable behavior or performance, um, it's, it comes with the job. Just like there are, you know, ugly, nasty things that a lab tech or a lab assistant has to do daily, the expectation is that they do those, you know, ugly things. Um, Performance management is one of those ugly things, and it's time-consuming, and it can be frustrating, and it's slow, but it has to be done. That was laboratory manager Renee Giroux. Renee oversees both a cytology and histology lab and has been in the laboratory field for 25 years making her way into management in 2013. When I spoke to her about the need for quality communication amongst her staff, I liked what she said there. The idea that it may be ugly, but performance management is part of a management job. It just has to be done. Managing the performance of others is hard. Sometimes the discussions and conversations are difficult because there's emotion involved. And dealing with emotions, either your own or someone else's, can be challenging. They say there's no crying in baseball, but crying at work? Well, it can happen. So why are difficult conversations so difficult? Any conversation that creates angst for us. So if it's delivery of good news, 
generally there is no angst. Oh, it's good news. I like to deliver good news. I like to give people positive feedback, thank them for a job well done, praise and accolades. Those things generally come easily. Um, Giving people critical feedback, even uh, feedback that you perceive not to be negative, but somebody else perceives it to be negative. Um, Delivering bad news, not necessarily bad news in the true sense of bad news, but something that you know the individual isn't likely going to be welcome to hear. Wendy Murdoch is the executive director of Mohawk Services, an employment assistance service that helps organizations make their workforce more effective and efficient. This includes communication and teamwork. The more successful you can become at handling a difficult conversation, the higher functioning team you will have. When I spoke with Wendy, we discussed the need to even have difficult conversations. Because as I said earlier, I'm a procrastinator. I can put off having an uncomfortable conversation as long as possible. Here, she gives an example of what can happen when important conversations are left undone. There's communication difficulties. There's a lot of conflict here. There's a lot of toxicity. Even they look at the attendance and they think that absenteeism is, is huge. Presenteeism is also an indicator where people are here, their attendance is great, but they're not getting the job done. They're not efficient. They're not effective. They're not productive. And then we have this whole notion of about employee engagement and we're surveying our workforces now. When these issues go unaddressed for years, a workplace can develop an unhealthy culture. Oftentimes, employee surveys can start to reveal some real issues, peeling back years of pent-up resentment and frustration. When we start to take the lid off that jar and begin to do some work, really there wasn't an atmosphere where it was welcomed to be able to identify shortcomings, disagreements, to be able to have some of those difficult topics of conversations. And so for years, it's been um, an unwritten norm, so to speak, to say, we just don't do that here. We don't talk about those things here. We don't, um, you know, it's shunned, it's frowned upon, etc. So you cultivate this whole culture within the workplace that isn't open, it isn't honest, and it isn't direct. You start to assess the level of trust in those organizations, and you'll start to find that it's very low as well. Highly suspicious. Does that sound like your workplace? I hope not, but it is the reality for many people. Things go unsaid for so long that it creates a culture of avoidance. Renee spoke a bit about what it feels like when your coworkers or team approach uncomfortable topics in a less than productive way. I've had instances where morale was down and staff went directly to the union. So then I was the last to know. And that didn't necessarily bode well with me because I always felt like I've had that open door policy and I've always allowed staff, you know, you know, are you venting or do you need me to do something about it? You know, so I, you know, it was almost my feelings were hurt in some ways that, you know, they, they'd gone to the union and I was the last to know and didn't have that opportunity to have, you know, the conversation with them of what are the challenges. And I felt like I could have helped resolve them, you know, by having a quick 30-minute meeting with the staff. And so, you know, when there is concerns, I I really do rely on my um, site supervisors to keep me also, you know, abreast of the situation and, okay, let's have a meeting and, and we'll air things out. It's important to remember that the resolutions that come from an uncomfortable discussion are bigger than just one person. It's about healthy employee engagement, a happier workplace, and your overall morale. With such high stakes, I wonder how much education and training goes towards this particular skill. Here's Wendy's take. It's the people perspective that that 
is most challenging. And those are not often courses that people go to. They're not necessarily part of any kind of post-secondary education program. A lot of it is based on life experience. And if that's an area that you are interested in, that you might have to go and seek those opportunities out. So, and many of us will uh, rise and grow in an organization through, I was a frontline employee, then I became a supervisor, then I became a manager without ever having any formalized training, mm-hmm. hands-on or textbook learning opportunities to be able to address the communication perspective, the change management in a workplace perspective and the conflict piece and the difficult conversations. I don't want to downplay the importance of on-the-job training or even workplace training. We've come a long way in terms of professional development provided by the employer. Oftentimes, these types of offerings fall within these so-called soft skills. Soft skills are not the technical skills we learn in school to actually do the work on the job. It's the bonus material, interprofessional relations, communications, time management. These topics can come later in one's career. Susan Finlater is a relatively new laboratory director in New Brunswick. Although she's been working in the lab for years, she went back to school to pursue higher education. Then, when completed, she was able to take advantage of her director position in her area. Now she oversees three laboratories and three phlebotomy sites with over 200 employees. That's a lot of conversations. Amongst those employees are team leaders and managers, each with their own management style. My managers go to a four-day leads program, which deals with um, uh, managing difficult people, conflict management. There's four four days of full training that they go to. All of our managers go to this training, and I find it very helpful. Training is important, but how do we translate what's learned in training into everyday action? We try to uh, create the culture in our lab where conflict is um, solved in a quick manner. So at any level in the lab, whether you are at the bench level or a manager or supervisor, um, the expectations are the same, that you would act professionally towards others and that you will work through your problems and um, get a resolution that is... um, will make everybody, I guess, happy. Creating a culture that is open and honest doesn't happen overnight. There is no process map or template for cultivating a perfect workplace culture. However, there are some things, if put into place, can be built upon over time. We have daily huddles of a Tier 1 huddle with the uh, supervisor and staff at the beginning of each shift. And then we have a Tier 2 huddle uh, with the supervisor and the manager daily to get a a concept of where we're going in the right direction. And then there's a Tier 3 huddle with the manager and director. So uh, we're we're well aligned with that group, and uh, it's through a lot of communication. And I think that is the only way we were able to um, succeed so quickly. That's Louis Litzas. He's the manager of anatomic pathology with Life Labs in Toronto. With over 150 employees working for him, daily communication is no small task. Although a newer member to his lab, he's already setting some precedents. Being informed doesn't necessarily just mean the facts. It means all-encompassing. So uh, my director, um, Frank Klosmo, he's 
uh, my mentor, and he's uh, he's been in laboratory medicine for over 20 years, and he is very successful at rallying teams together and putting groups of communication together, and he's been able to take me under his wing, and he said the main thing that you've got to really understand is you've got to know your people. And at first, with all these things going on and dealing with their volume and I have 150 staff and I don't know half of their names, and, and he wanted me to go around and then say hi to everybody and figure out, you know, what makes them tick. <laughs> and I thought, wow, that's a good, Frank, that great dream, but that's not going to happen. However, with time, that was probably the most beneficial and most valuable thing I've done. I've been able to have one-on-one -on -one meetings with every single one of my staff members. I know exactly um, what type of training they've had, what type of environments they've worked in before. I know what areas from the supervisors and, uh, and the other staff are telling me what areas they're successful in, what areas we're struggling with in, uh, with that group. And, um, and then I get to know them personally, too. You know, What's your family situation? What's your schooling situation? What are you doing, you know, in, in your life? And how was your weekend type of thing? What Lewis is doing is setting a proactive plan for when those times when conversations with the manager is less than pleasant. He has made an effort to build trust with his employees. As a manager, you have a unique position to both manage the performance of the team and manage each individual on that team. Of course, he doesn't do this to only make having difficult conversations easier. There is a bigger picture here about creating a high-functioning, productive workforce in an environment that is pleasant to be in. Here he explains how having background information and truly understanding his staff serves a higher purpose in those more difficult times. So I think when I'm informed with all of that information, and then when this individual then now is in front of me and they're, they're dealing with an issue and they're crying and um, they've been emotionally upset and it's, it's, it's something, I've got to look at it from their shoes. I've got to really prepare myself to say, I need to understand this person. And my first ritual probably would be to be a listener. I have to be a real good listener to really understand what they're getting at. I think secondarily to that is I have to be supportive. I have to really support them through this. This is challenging. This is tough. This is emotional. This is something that is not in an SOP. This is something that it can go several different ways. And so if I'm a good listener and I'm supportive, it usually creates an environment for discussion. The point is, it would be very challenging for anyone to give bad news or provide critical feedback or make corrective actions if there hasn't been trust already built. Renee spoke to me a bit about how open and honest conversations need to be part of the workday norm. A note here, she mentions bullying as our longer discussion took many turns. Her point, though, was that confronting someone, even a colleague, should be a normal practice when done respectfully. Again, I think it's about that relationship. And, um, you know, staff meetings, they tend to always be about policy and procedure within that department. But there are other policies and procedures. You know, there is attendance. There is dress code. We need to make, you know, respectful conversation and relationships within the workplace, you know, really almost an agenda item that we discuss it and encourage one another to be able to, you know, I didn't like what you said. It made me feel this way. And, and just to help raise awareness 
that, oh, you know what, maybe I was a bit short. And it, it allows that, you know, that conversation to be immediate and timely. And, you know, it also allows, the, you know, that opportunity for that perceived bully to say, you know, you caught me here. You're right. That wasn't, that wasn't respectful conversation. I am going through something, and I'm taking it out on you, and that's not okay. Or, you know what, you're right. You have as much right to have Christmas off. You have family. I shouldn't expect that because I have kids, I get it off every year. So I think we just need to make it part of our everyday norm. We know we have to put our lab coats on and have our hair tied back. We also have to have respectful conversations. So how do we go about saying that open and honest discussions amongst peers is going to become the norm in the workplace to actually doing it? That's the hard part. Here's Renee's thoughts on how these conversations work best. But again, it's that it's direct and it's timely and it's open and, and it's with the intention to gain a better understanding so that we can collaborate and better meet and understand one another's needs. These are the terms we have heard. Open, direct, timely. All elements of creating a successful outcome. Wendy adds to this and helps explain why we would embark on a difficult conversation and how best to prepare. If you arrive at, you know what, this is important, the relationship's important, the topic's important, and I really do need to embark on the conversation, then again, the first question is, what's the purpose? What do I hope to get out of it? And then thinking about what would be the ideal outcome from my perspective? And am I open to other outcomes? So very quickly, from a human perspective, we will go to best case scenario and worst case scenario. And so thinking about that conversation, I maybe need to think about what could be the best case scenario. And it might not be about win-win. Maybe it's that, you know what, at least I have an opportunity to sit down with this individual and I have an opportunity to um, share my thoughts, share my feelings, my opinion, my perspective, etc. We need to also do some work in what assumptions am I making? Do I have some prejudgments or some um, uh, perceptions that may or may not be true? And so if I think that they're true, then what does that mean? If they're not true, what could I do to be able to ask some questions? And while these conversations can never be scripted word for word, it's a bit like preparing for a meeting and thinking that you have an agenda. So as I mentioned before, maybe your top three ideas, what are you going to do? You need to think about and be in check with what buttons might you feel are going to be pushed. And if those buttons are pushed by the other individual, how am I going to respond? Remaining calm, remaining um, centered and focused, taking some deep breaths even in the preparation phase and being able to do some self-assessment about where are, is my stress level and where are my emotions? Am I sad? Am I angry? If, I, if my anger escalates, how might I react? If I'm sad, how might I react? What can I do to sort of keep those in check? And be very cognizant of not only your buttons, but what buttons, if any, might you push of the other individual, either knowingly or unknowingly. Um, Look and make a check for your attitude. What's the attitude that I bring? And then you really need to think about your agenda. So what is your, uh, again, your top three points. Be very specific, be very factual, and keep it um, to the facts and the specifics as opposed to personal comments or personal observations. And those are really good guidelines for being able to keep the conversation in a very uh, factual and professional component or context, as opposed to thinking about pointing the finger or making accusations.
So what we've learned is that difficult conversations need to be timely, facing an issue at the time of the occurrence instead of rehashing out a laundry list of past problems. They need to be direct and honest. As Wendy mentioned, you need to have a purpose and understand your expected outcome, or at least the outcome you would like to produce. We have covered the why, but we need to discuss the logistics. This includes the best way to navigate these conversations. As we shift to the actual navigation of the conversation, we need to be really sensitive to thinking about the timing and the location of the um, conversation. So every single difficult conversation, regardless of the workplace and regardless of what the physical layout is, should be done in privacy. It's not appropriate to do it in an open um, meeting area or an open office cubicle space. Or we need to be behind a closed door and to be able to have privacy. Asking the person in advance if you can have some of their time, as opposed to thinking that they're on their way to a meeting or on their way to grab a coffee or, or a drink of water, and you interrupting their plan to be able to execute something else, you will not likely have their undivided attention. So booking a time um, and asking them for some time, they ask what it's about, you can say, I'd like to talk to you about, and give them a heads up, as opposed to catching them while they're on the fly and then talking to them about perhaps a difficult topic or a sensitive topic may not be setting the stage for the best possible outcome. There is another aspect to logistics I think should go without saying, but is important enough to mention. A difficult conversation should not be done through email. So when we think about those difficult conversations, we really need to be able to think about it's a face-to-face, sit-down, hopefully, experience, as opposed to some notion that, oh, I sent an email in and it's been dealt with, thank you very much. Not an efficient or effective way to be able to deal with that. Recognizing that there are some uh, relationships from an employment perspective where you work remotely, and even those should be dealt with in booking an, an appointment or booking a meeting, even as even you know a FaceTime or a Skype conversation where you have an opportunity to see one another would be far more beneficial than thinking that it could be accomplished through a text message. If it's serious enough and important enough, even with remote um, employees, we can find ways to be able to get some FaceTime and, and meeting time together. So I can't stress that in, in, enough that these conversations really need to be in-person conversations as opposed to firing off an email or a text and thinking that it's been dealt with. Thank you very much. So I'll admit that I have used the written word as a way to protect myself from having a difficult conversation. As I have since learned, it is not the best solution. Perhaps you've done that too. Did you get the result you wanted? Probably not. So I find, you know, interpersonal communication, it's lessening. People tend to email and text, um, and either one of those, they can be easily misinterpreted. If you leave the, you know, cap locks on, it looks like you're yelling, and it's just the, it might be something as simple as you, you left the cap locks on. Um, and either one of those, it's, they're impersonal, and often the best thing is just to pick up the phone and call that individual and have a conversation or, or book a, a formal meeting with them and, and have a real conversation. So I kind of am finding that, you know, face-to-face conversations tend to happen less frequently. And and I've had, um, case, you know, I've heard of cases where two individuals work together for many years and the one individual didn't even know that the other one had two children. So we have set the stage, found a private space, booked a face-to-face meeting, have our list of top discussion points, and have even thought about the outcomes we want. 
We now know what we should do, but what about the things we shouldn't do? Wendy helps us here again. So there are some things that we should stay away from. Blaming or projection where um, saying you or when you, you could even tone that down to say, help me to understand a little bit more about, as opposed to when you said this, to say, I heard this was the message and I'm concerned about this component, this component, and this component about the message. Or I'm thinking that I need to have better um, information or I need to have gain a better understanding or gain a, another perspective in regards to whatever the topic or the subject matter is. We can take everything we learned here, be fully prepared for a difficult conversation, ready to apply the do's and the don'ts. But what happens when we aren't able to have that conversation at all? What do you do when your request for a conversation gets rejected? We couldn't put everything into this episode, but I really wanted to share with you what Wendy had to say about this subject. So we've put her tips into a short video, and it's available on the website, podcast.csmls.org. There's some really good content there. You don't want to miss it. Hopefully, you've learned a few tactics to start using right away. Even if you're not in a position to manage other people, you might still find yourself needing to have a difficult conversation with a coworker or even a friend or a family member. Next time you know you have to have a difficult conversation with someone, think about all the ways that you can help make it successful. It won't necessarily make it easier, but it's not supposed to be. That's why it's called a difficult conversation. The Objective Lens is written and produced by Michael Grant and myself, Kathy Bowers, and is the official podcast of the Canadian Society for Medical Laboratory Science. Editing and technical assistance by Joel Tresini. Administrative support by Ridmilla Minor. For other episodes, supplemental content, and bonus material, visit our website at podcast.csmls.org. If you're in the medical laboratory field, you will want to go to the website to find a link to a short quiz. By completing the quiz, you will earn a certificate verifying professional development hours for listening to this episode. We'd love to hear from you. Come chat with us on Twitter, at CSMLS, or on Facebook. You can find us at facebook.com slash CSMLS.